Hello, everyone, and welcome to NAIS Member Voices. I'm Scott Donaldson, and today we'll be featuring the second part of my conversation with Andre Withers, Assistant Head of School at the Madeira School in McLean, Virginia. We hope you enjoy. I know it's hard to you know predict or plan for things like this, but what do you envision moving forward? You know, at least this year and and on into next year, as it relates to COVID. Yeah. Do you think anything that you've you've implemented will will stick or uh, change or or how do you see that going? Well, that's a that's a great question. I, I think I'm going to probably try to answer that in two different ways. One of which is sort of a practical and pragmatic way, and one is is a little bit more big picture. From the big picture perspective, I think one of the things that will stick is we've we've developed a mantra that we're not going to waste a good crisis. And uh, you know, COVID has certainly put us all um, in a box. At the same time, I think we're trying to break out of that box and think about how Madeira is going to come back really thriving and um, taking advantage of either riding the wave of or maybe even you know leading leading the way around. Uh, the educational revolution. You know, COVID has taught us a number of things around how we deliver instruction. COVID has taught us a number of things about how we work with adolescents who are going through small T and big T trauma. COVID has taught us a lot in terms of the social emotional reactions of uh, of, of teens who are near and far. Um, COVID has taught us a lot about screen time and 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 COVID has taught, taught us a lot about health and wellness. The notion that we will come out bigger and better is one that we are really holding on to and, and, and chasing just as aggressively as we've been chasing our mission. On a practical level, um, I do think that that we will probably continue to have discussions and or make plans around how we do staff our, uh, our health and wellness program. I think we'll continue to have discussions about how we look at um, staffing configurations uh, on the whole. I think we'll have We'll continue to have some interesting conversations about um, how we utilize time, um, and uh, some of those I think will 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 really stick. But again, are connected to that whole notion of we can be ground zero for the educational revolution. I think I think there'll be a number of things that do stick. So being so close to DC, it makes me think as well that that your school may have been potentially especially impacted by the recent general election. Uh, and I'm just wondering, you know, what you did in your role and at your school around the election to to teach and model civility and, and lead productive conversations. Yeah, I think um, I think I'll answer that from the school perspective more so than 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 the individual perspective. Sure. Um, I wasn't a direct player, and in a, in a lot of ways, I'm. I think it was the right thing that. I and or other members of the senior admin team were not the direct players. Um, it really did come from our faculty who not only wanted to make sure that the adolescent reactions to the general election, both going into and coming out of, um, were not disruptive to the learning process. Um, they wanted to make sure that the general election was part of the learning process. And so our faculty um, took a lot of intentional time to scaffold um, and, and design ways in which we were going to talk about the general election uh, in the macro and the micro, right, as a, as a full community, but also in smaller chunks. Um, and so we certainly had our 
conversations at each of our grade level class meetings and our advisories. Um, but then we also had messaging that came um, to the full fac- to the full community from our faculty as well as from our head of school. We were really intentional, and I give ourselves a lot of credit. And and, and again, I'm sure many schools in the membership did as well. We get I give, but I give ourselves a lot of credit for um, really thinking about civil discourse and really thinking about relationships that envelop and or surround that civil discourse, that we are a school community. And in some ways that has to be the primary um, sort of fallback that we have, that we are in relation with, in relationship with one another, we're in community with one another. And, you know, we must be able to have some civil discourse that allows us to keep that relationship intact. I think the big challenge, though, is to is is, is continuing to to have that civil discourse behavior and skill to really push against the the, the really pervasive and, and strong cancel culture that's present, not just in adolescence, um, but but in our uh, amongst adults as well. You know, part of part of our work is not only to talk about how we evidence, illustrate, and and, and manifest. Um, civil discourse around the general election, but how do we make sure that 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 behavior shows up well after? Um, you know, when there's an issue in the dorm, when there's an issue on the field, when there's a when there's a debate that takes place in the classroom, when when there are counter opinions that we know are going to occur, uh, how do we make sure that we are not doing what um, we have what we have found to be so unhealthy outside of the four walls um, or the gates of the school around cancel culture, but instead to truly see uh, those differing opinions uh, as something to be valued, as something to, to dig a little deeper around, as something to, that, that actually brings us closer together, not pushes us to the polls. And in thinking about the, you know, the the major things that that have happened in 2020, of course, we talked about the the pandemic and the general election. Of course, also you have the murder of George Floyd, which kind of brings me to to another topic that I wanted to talk to you about, which was diversity and equity and inclusion work. Do you have a role in that work at your school? Yes and no. Um, I think that that from a from a systemic perspective, um, from a from a a mission infrastructure perspective. Yes, as assistant head, I certainly do have a role in um, helping the head of school and our senior admin team and even our board actually find ways in which to deeply operationalize DEIJ in our in our school. As well, I have a, a, a role in helping to make sure that all the components of uh, of, of our school program are not operating with DEIJ as an adjunct piece of who we are, but instead as a as a, an integrated piece of who we are. Mm-hmm. Um, I've long said that DEIJ has to be part of the the, the DNA of of, a, of an educational institution because we are we are people who are dealing with young children and young adults, and all of them are going through some level of identity development. And to that end, we say we want to be institutions that teach the whole child. Well, if every child has some element of their identity that's being developed through the course of their time on our campuses, then developing that racial identity, um, that racial identity, uh, developing that 
uh, that sexual orientation, you know, supporting their their growth in all of those facets of their identity as part of our responsibility. Uh, so yes, um, you know, my role as assistant head certainly um, did have me in the throes of a lot of the response and, and a lot of the design, but then also just being being a black man, I was compelled to not only in the in the wake of George Floyd and 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 the other uh, folks that we lost and the the civil unrest that came with it, my identity as well has been a part of all of the the, the work that I've done um, since arriving in independent schools and certainly up until today. And from your perspective, how do you counsel or how do those at your school counsel students who want to take a more active role in protests against racial injustice or police brutality or, you know, feel like they want to do more? How do you approach that? Open the door. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a way, it's, it's, a, it's as simple as that, right? I think that we've, unfortunately, in our country, I think we've gotten to a place where um, there are some words that have become dirty words, um, and I think activist or activism has unfortunately become a, a little bit of a dirty word. I think that there is something powerful in seeing a young adult find something that they are so passionate about, find something that is so important, find something that they that, that they want to be an ally around that we should find every possible way to open the door so that they can be that supporter, that they can be that activist, that they can, because to me, being the activist is not only the one that is um, at the protest and or holding up the sign, um, part of that activism is also to the point we we were making earlier about civil discourse, part of being that activist is also uh, learning while doing. What else do I need to know about this topic so that I can be the most effective uh, activist? Um, you know, what do I need to in, in, input into my activism that allows me to 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 be most effective and to allow me uh, that allows me to bring others uh, into the fold? So I think that part of our responsibility as schools you know, is to is to figure out how to metaphorically or figure, figuratively open the door. We talk a lot about service. We talk a lot about service learning. We talk a lot about giving back. And to me, that is far more than just a canned food drive. That, that also includes having our um, students out in the field, out in the work, out in the protest, um, not only Again, lending their voice to the issue, but learning while also lending their voice. And on a related note, I'm interested in your perspective on the Black Hat movement and how you see that as being an opportunity for school leaders to potentially discover things that they might not have been aware of and make some changes. Yeah, the Black Hat movement, I'll, I'll, I'll speak from a couple of different perspectives. Um, globally, for our schools, I think that the learning might have taken place in some of the specific instances that students uh, and alums had cited, but the patterns were have been known for quite some time. I think that it is wrong or incorrect for us, again, globally, our institutions, our, our private independent schools, to, to, to see these as new revelations. Um, we've known for years that the that the 
lived experience of underrepresented groups in our school has been everything from unusual to difficult to traumatic. And we may not have known some of the specific instances. We may not have known some of the specific classrooms. We may may not have known some of the specific kids. But on the whole, we've known. Um, and, uh, And I think that the proof of us having known that is the fact that we've been doing DEIJ work uh, across the membership for <laughs> over 25 years so that we can better understand what uh, what that lived experience is and what we can do about it. So so that's 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 sort of a, my 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 global response. Um I think that as as someone who you know really loves being connected to young learners um and someone who actively works to help them find their voice. I think the Black Ad movement made total sense to me. It made absolute total sense. It was hard for everyone, but I think it made total and complete sense um, because these alums and, 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 and even current students have been talking and trying to convey for so long, it sort of felt as if they were just sort of talking into an abyss. And now comes this platform that can spread far and wide and where they can really have not only the the reporting mechanism, but the catharsis. It made total sense to me. Speaking at so that's 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 a that's another perspective. And third, uh, mm-hmm. you know, as as a as a man of color, I found so many consistent patterns in their lived experience to my own. Um, you know, being a being being a being a black man in independent school, um, you know, I I was not an independent school product, but the notion of you know being other and all that comes with that, I I have lived that daily um, over twenty some odd years of being in independent schools, and you know, my relief valve has been that I was an adult uh, and I was in a in a position of power, and that helped me to not be as traumatized um, and or not as significantly impacted as the students themselves. But at the same time, I, I saw myself reflected in a lot of those posts in terms of how they spoke about otherness. Well, thank you for sharing that and for the work that you're doing. And I, I feel like we've you know talked about a lot already, but I'm interested uh, if you had to name it, is there something right now in your role, uh, in your professional life that you feel like is your biggest challenge? What keeps you up at night right now? <laughs> what keeps me up at night? Um, <laughs> that, that list is long. How long is our episode? Right. Um, <laughs> I think one of the things that keeps me up at night, and it, it in a way it goes back to um, the comment I made about not wasting a good a good crisis. Um, what keeps me up at night is trying to tap into either a, a a part of my leadership that either hasn't been accessed in a while, and or you know develop a completely new muscle so that those folks who are my direct reports and or those folks who I work alongside have what they need from their leader 
to, again, come out of this crisis in a bigger, better, more thriving place. I think that's one piece. The second piece to that is trying to keep people poised to just make it through the day, but also being ready to launch that next big idea, right? You know, we all have the fatigue, the COVID fatigue. We all have the Zoom fatigue. We all have the the stressor of, you know, trying to be your best at your workplace while also trying to, you know, be a good parent, be a good child to your parents and, you know, all of that, right? Mm-hmm. And and so most of us are just trying to make it through the day. Most of us are just trying to get to the point where, you know, at the end of the day, you feel like you, you've done at least your 85%. You may not have done, you may not have done 100% pre like pre covid but you get you did 85% you did your best but also you know trying to keep some north star in front of folks so that whether it's in their respective um, departments that they run or whether it be in and just their own individual big idea or whether it's the sort of mission and, and north star of the school but keeping them poised and and ready to flip the switch to pursue that next big thing that does you know, raise the raise the tide for all boats. That that's what keep that's one of the things that keeps me up at night. I, I I just don't know that I do that well every day. But I think that's one what I, what I sort of try to stay mindful of. You don't want to ask too much of folks because folks are just trying to get through their COVID day. And yet, how do you still keep people inspired? How do you still keep some North Star in front of them? How do you still have them thinking about the next thing, knowing that um, the next thing is really just the thing that's the next step in front of them, as opposed to um, the next big initiative? Any other important lessons you've learned or pieces of advice that you've received either throughout your career or, or even just in the past year or so that really stick out? I think in the past year or so, um, I, actually, I call it the past three years, but it's really come to light this year with the pandemic. All of these pieces that we've, these big pieces that we've been talking about in our independent school world are really now, have really now come together, uh, come sort of away from being on a buffet table um, onto a plate. We've been talking about sustainability. We've been talking about DEIJ. We've been talking about value proposition. We've been talking about accessibility and, and, a, and, a, and a shrinking uh, population of the 1% that could really afford our independent school and so on. And so, and, and so I, I think for years, those things have been sort of on the buffet of things that we've got to deal with. And now they are on our proverbial plate. I think that some of the advice that I've gotten and even some of the advice that I've given is that we now are at even a more critical juncture around moving away from those things being the, the things that are going to that are our biggest threats to our biggest opportunities. And I think that, you know, we are in such a place in our educational landscape, such a place uh, and time in our country where families are going to be looking for something different coming out of, um, you know, Black Lives Matter and, and George Floyd and all of our uh, our civil unrest and, and even some of our, our political polarization. I think that 
students are going to be looking for something different coming out of e-learning and, and remote learning and you know um, the hybrid learning. And I think that if we don't figure out how to rethink who we are and turn that into a value proposition that is really going to be attractive um, for the next generation of families, for the next generation of learners, I think that is going to be the thing that really works against us. I think we've got such an opportunity right now um, to really eat off of this plate of opportunity. The, the value proposition of our schools really should be so crystal clear uh, and so, should be so integrated and, and interconnected coming out of this pandemic and coming out of all the changes that College Board is, is going to be making and coming out of all the changes that colleges and universities are going to be making and coming out of the feedback that we're going to get from faculty and staff about changes to their craft. Like This is all right for doing something big and bold. And I think families are going to want to be a part of that. And I think the schools that have just hunkered down and have only thought about how to make it through this are going to be the schools that will be no longer. Well, Andre, thanks so much for uh, for all the work you and your colleagues are doing and, and for the time today. I really appreciate it. I am grateful to you, my friends. Scott, this has been fantastic. I, I And I'm grateful that you've given me the opportunity to kind of get out of the weeds um, and talk a little bit about you know, being a part of the membership um, and being a part of Madeira. Um, this has been fantastic for me. I appreciate your your questions and as well as your insight. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to NAIS Member Voices. You can visit NAIS.org slash member voices to explore resources related to my conversation with Andre. You can also keep an eye on that page for new podcast episodes or subscribe to automatically receive a new podcast episode in your feed each month. Please be sure to listen and then rate and review each new episode. You can also go back and listen to past episodes you may have missed. We'll be back next month with a new episode devoted to building an effective team, and we hope you'll join us. Finally, if you have any ideas for what or who you'd like to hear on the podcast, we'd love to hear from you please email your ideas to membership at nais.org.